So the story goes that at the end of the Constitutional Convention, all the way back, September 18th, 1787, I have that written down, that's not from memory, 236 years ago, Ben Franklin was asked, what have we got, a republic or a monarchy? And who remembers the response, at least allegedly, he gave? Anyone? There we go, a republic if you can keep it. That's prescient. It's like the architects of our system of self-government were on to something. They perceived that this experiment would be tested from the get-go. It wasn't a guarantee that this new republic could last, that it could transfer power peacefully, withstand those threats internally, externally. And so friends, consider what does it take to preserve a nation? What does it take to keep a nation intact, prospering? Right? What's required of its leaders, of its, of its citizens? What does it take to lose it? Right? How quickly can things unravel? And we can ask that questions about our own souls. What causes a soul to prosper? Or what cause it to, causes it to sink into decline. See, this morning we're beginning a sermon series on the life of Solomon. That's David's son, the son known for his wisdom, known for building the temple in Jerusalem. But before Solomon sat on his father's throne, we learn that all was not well in the kingdom. Right, after all of David's great exploits, after all of his stunning military victories, it didn't look like Israel, as David's reign came to an end, it didn't look like Israel was going to keep its kingdom intact. Because in David's old age, things were coming undone in Jerusalem. And here's why. David, as he came to the end of his life, was silent on who was to take his place. It seems he made no preparations to transfer power. He made no public announcement. He didn't tell his people who was to ascend to the throne after him. And because of his reluctance, his slowness, his silence to name the next king, turmoil erupted. So here's some free advice. Husbands, if you have something on your list to do today, go ahead and do it. Save yourself the trouble. David's oldest remaining son, Adonijah, he was tired of waiting on his old father. And so he took it upon himself just to go ahead and name himself king. He didn't consult his father. It seems like he didn't really care if his father had any alternative plans. Adonijah, as that oldest son tends to do, feeling a bit entitled, saw an opportunity and he took it. And the problem, though, with Adonijah's plot was that David had promised Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, that her son would be king. You get the sense that David had a hard time managing things in his own house. And so when Bathsheba goes to plead her case to David, listen 
to how she closes her appeal. She says, and now my Lord, the King, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my Lord, the King, after him. Do you see what she's doing? Women are smart, aren't they? She's reminding David, you're still the king. And are you going to let Adonijah just come along and push you aside? Or are you going to get up off the couch and act like a king? So think, when are you tempted to ignore your responsibilities? David's old, he's been king for a long time, but Bathsheba reminds David here of an important leadership principle. Like, leaders run their race to the end. Leaders finish the job that they start in. I looked at the box score this morning from the Cats game, and it looks like that's not what they did. We've got to play four quarters. And so think, are there promises you aren't keeping this morning? Right? Are there responsibilities that you have that belong to you, that only you can do, that you're putting off? Think, whose eyes are on you, looking for you to act? You see, before we get to Solomon, see, before we get to Solomon's reign, the question, the question that is hanging over Israel is whether David will have the strength, whether he's going to have the resolve to act as king up to his last breath. Will David rise to the occasion and keep his kingdom from tearing apart? And thanks to Bathsheba, David rallies. He follows through on his responsibility and he swears to Bathsheba, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, your son Solomon shall reign after me. He shall sit on my throne in my place. You know, it's kind of sad, though, that it took the threat of a divided kingdom for David to act. And maybe David wasn't ready to reckon with the end of his life. He wasn't ready to to give up the throne. But once David acted, after naming Solomon his heir, he gave his son the charge, the words, the counsel that he needed to keep his kingdom intact and prospering. And David, as we see in our passage this morning, is ready to pass the baton to the next king. So our passage this morning as we begin this series is in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and verses 10 to 12. When David's time to to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. 
that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way, to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So in his last message, Robert Baden-Powell, he was the founder of the Boy Scouts, encouraged his listeners to leave this world a little better than you found it. And I'm not sure David, as he neared death, he could honestly say that the kingdom was in better shape than in previous years. There was still a kingdom to hand off. Things weren't in complete shambles. But what we learn as we read through David's life is that his own sins, right, his inattention to his sons, his administrators, all that was going on in his kingdom, meant that Solomon was taking charge of a kingdom that had gone through some rough patches, that had taken its lumps, that not everything was truly prospering under David's leadership. And so I think these final words to Solomon are, in some sense, I think David taking responsibility for the decline of the kingdom. Right? David's looking at his son on his deathbed, admitting, confessing that the reasons for the problems, all the turmoil in his kingdom are because because at critical times, David didn't show himself to be strong. That he didn't always prove himself to be a man by faithfully walking in the ways of his Lord. David's looking back over his life. And in honesty, he's admitting, son, I wasn't always careful to pay attention to every word that came from the mouth of our God. As king, there were times when David clearly misunderstood what it meant to be strong, to be a man. I think times when he was so proud of his kingdom, so confident in himself, that this king took the eyes off of his king. Now, there's a scene at the end of the movie, A Sin of a Woman, where Al Pacino's character says that he always knew the right path to take in life, but he never took it. Why? It was too hard. Right? In the movie, it was a moment of realization for this character that all along this man, this lieutenant colonel, thought he was tough, brave, that he was the epitome of strength and manliness. And then he realized 
that every choice he had made along the way was actually to avoid what was hard. And I think about my own sins and how I think I can trace back really the root is choosing the easy way out. The way that that doesn't require any self-denial. The way that doesn't doesn't require any self-control. The way that doesn't ask me to put others above the interests of my own. And so what does it take to keep a kingdom? What does it take to keep a church faithful? To maintain the integrity of a marriage, to treat your enemies with compassion, to hold to the truth, even if it means being alone. When you leave your house in the morning, do you ask, what what do I need for the day? As you walk the halls of your school, as you sit at your computer, as you speak with a coworker, you need strength and courage. Right? The ability to choose the right way, no matter the obstacle that is standing in your way. We need courage and strength as God's people because the right path is hard. Right? The wrong way, the shortcut, the self-serving approach, that way, as Jesus put it, you're going to find that that way is wide and it's easy. There's lots of company on that path. And the gate, the path that leads to life, Jesus says, is narrow. And it is a difficult path. And that narrow, difficult path, this way that actually requires true strength and courage, is revealed in God's word. And so notice, David, at the end of his life, he isn't passing on his own words. He isn't giving Solomon his top 10 lessons from being king. He isn't running through his list of accomplishments and then challenging his son to match him. See, David points his son to the only place that we can find the way to life and to true prosperity and success. David uses seven words, statutes, testimonies, commandments, ways, all to describe the word of God. See, the message is clear. Solomon is to live by the whole counsel of God. And you can see the temptation as this king finally comes to power, finally gets to be king and rule over this kingdom. David reminds him that as you come to power, son, you are never a law unto yourself. And so how will the kingdom prosper under Solomon's reign? Right, how are the people going to benefit from his rule and his leadership? And what we learn is that the people of Israel will prosper to the degree that their leader, their king, Solomon, keeps the commands of the Lord. Right, the state of Solomon's soul is never a private matter. The state of his soul and his relationship with the Lord will be known 
It will be felt and it will be experienced by everyone in his kingdom and under his rule. Right? And that's true for us today in the church. Not that we have kings, but we prosper. We're successful in our mission as long as we base everything that we do in the word of God. So church, what you must expect, what you must expect from your elders, your leaders, is obedience to God's word. And not to confuse your word with God's word. Your expectation is that they will live under the authority of God's word as they lead you. And so we don't look for leaders, our elders, based on personal taste, personal preference, merely who we know. Paul taught Titus that one of the requirements of an elder is that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. What matters for a leader is their relationship to this word. And just as an update in the life of our church, this Friday and Saturday, your elders are, are gathering to think about what's next for us as a church. It's a time for an extended time of, of planning for the future. So I thought, how appropriate for this text. Right? And it, it leads us to pray that we would examine our decisions, our plans against this word. Right? I'd encourage you that you'd pray that we would feel the full weight of our responsibility to keep the charge that the Lord has given us. And I'd ask that you'd also pray for your pastors, right, who are charged to, to teach. Pray that we would handle this word well. And pray always that we wouldn't, that your pastors wouldn't use this pulpit as an excuse or as a way to neglect our personal and our private obedience and study of God's word. Because the state of our souls, the state of our souls can't be hidden long, can't be hidden, at least for long, from those that we are charged to shepherd. And we as the church have no right to expect God's blessing when we aren't careful to pay attention to his ways. Jesus made clear that the person who builds his house on sand can't cry foul when his house collapses. And so we see that obedience, faithfulness is critical. But we also know that, that David understands that it was because of God's grace that he was made king. He never claims that his obedience somehow merited him the throne. It was due to grace that his house, that his house was the one chosen to be established to rule over Israel. That's why right after God promised to establish this throne forever, we read that David prayed. He said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? 
That's a prayer of a man who understands God's grace. And he knew that he could trust that whatever happened, God would be faithful. That God would be faithful to fulfill his promise. And yet, as we read here, David reminded Solomon that without faithfulness, right, without obedience, Israel won't have a king. So here's the issue that faces us. We read that God made this unconditional promise to David. He said, I will establish your house forever. Without any qualifications, any conditions, your throne, your line will continue. But here we read that the future of this kingdom, of this throne, hangs on a condition. David's sons must be faithful. They must be obedient. And that's the only way to keep this kingdom from tearing apart. That's the only way that this kingdom will ever prosper. And so as we step back and look at these two things, this unconditional promise, this promise that hangs on a condition, we might wonder, did God put himself in a bind? Right? How can God fulfill his unconditional promise to David? Right? As we'll learn later, Solomon and every other king failed to keep his charge. How? How can the promise be both unconditional and conditional? Well, you see how that's a knot. Well, like all knots in the Bible, they get untied with Jesus. Because when Jesus comes to earth, he could say this. He could say, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Right? This one was wiser than Solomon. He was a greater temple than the one Solomon built. And his obedience, his obedience, unlike all the kings before him, his obedience endured to his dying breath on the cross. This was the king who finished strong. He died and it looked like weakness. But it was the greatest act of strength and courage. It was the greatest act of obedience any man had ever served up. And so you can see God's kingdom, this kingdom is established both by grace and obedience. Right? In grace, God never revoked his promise to David despite all of the failures. Right? In Jesus' obedience, the condition God gave to David's descendants was finally met. And so in grace, we get to experience, we get to receive the reward of Christ's obedience. We get to live under his prosperity. But when we return to Solomon, as we'll see in our series, sadly it didn't take long for Solomon's reign to begin to decline. Like Saul, like his father, this king sadly doesn't keep the charge perfectly. 
And so shortly after his death, the kingdom is torn apart. And for the rest of the story, this kingdom will reflect the divided hearts of their kings. And once again, we learn that decline is what you reap when you build your life on anything other than God's word. And so as we close this morning, consider, consider, is your soul prospering or is it in decline? Is your life yielding fruit or do you feel as if it's withering? Are the people in your life, are they getting to experience the blessing of your obedience? Or are they feeling the curse that comes with your disobedience? See, David was a man who knew about decline. He could speak well about the pain that comes from departing from the commands of God. People in his life, his family, and his kingdom felt the pain. They felt the consequences of his lack of faithfulness. We can all testify that. When we speak a word that is ungracious, a word that doesn't build up, when things we do are not done in love, we know that those around us feel that. So David knew about decline. But he also knew that the law of the Lord is perfect and that this word is actually able to revive one's soul. And so friends, spiritual decline can be reversed. A tree that hasn't borne much fruit can once again prosper. See, David didn't give his son a perfect kingdom. He wasn't a perfect father. There were times of of, of weakness and a lack of strength in his life. And yet here at the end, as David is taking his last breath, I think David shows himself to be a man of great strength and great courage. He shows himself to be a true man. He shows himself a good and loving father because with his last breath, David points his son to the one path that can bring life. So what path are you on this morning? Whose counsel are you listening to? The question before all of us is, are our souls prospering as we delight in God's word? Let's pray. Lord God, as we prepare to come to your table, we pray that you would Open our eyes to see the wonders of your grace, your life, your death for us. Pray also that as we partake of your grace, you would help us to walk more faithfully with you. Lord, would you help us now?
In your son's name, amen.